Good morning, my name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. What is on your CV? What kinds of things have you listed out there? Is it one page? Is it two pages? Maybe it's three pages long. It's probably too long if it's three pages long. I have a CV here. It's a CV for me, in fact. I had to fill one of these out to uh, uh, get my visa sponsorship through the Council of Evangelical Churches. So I had to write one of these up. It's kind of interesting to look over your CV and think that on maybe the front and back page of a piece of paper represents most of your life's work listed out. What's on your CV? When you apply for a job, oftentimes the only thing that is going to get you through the door and get you seated and a hearing with a supervisor, someone who can hire you, is that CV. You know, we work hard at making our CVs look as good as possible. We format them well. We try to list all those accomplishments, every award imaginable that we can remember. We describe our past jobs in the most impressive way possible. We do this, of course, to be accepted as an employee somewhere, to be welcomed into the fold of those who are paid to work for a particular company. What if you had to present a CV to God when you stood before him on Judgment Day? You know, there was uh, uh, an evangelism program that existed, I think it was maybe back in the 70s, it was called Evangelism Explosion. And one of the key questions that those who went through the Evangelism Explosion program were taught to say when they were speaking with a non-Christian is, if you were standing before God at the gates of heaven and he asked you the question, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? It's kind of the CV question, isn't it? What's on your CV? It's kind of a useful question, perhaps, for different people in different circumstances. What would be on the CV that you hand to God? You know, the question that Paul is going to answer today in this passage is, how can we be accepted and welcomed into a covenant relationship with a holy and righteous God? That's really the question that sits behind all the verses that we're reading this morning. Even more clearly stated, you could ask that question, how can sinners be accepted and welcomed into covenant relationship with God, one who is entirely holy and righteous, morally perfect? How can that happen? It really is the question, in fact, that the entire Bible answers from beginning to end. Now, we know that the scriptures say that God is love. But the scriptures also tell us that God is a holy judge. He's the ruler of heaven and earth. And he created people to be in a perfectly loving and morally perfect relationship with him. We were intended to live like him, to be like him in our character. That's what Adam and Eve were like in the beginning. But they rebelled and they disobeyed. And so we all are born as descendants of those rebels, our great, 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 great grandparents, so to speak. We rebel too. 
I can prove it. I can prove it to you, in fact, that you're a rebel. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever spoken unloving words to another person? Did you ever disrespect and dishonor your parents? There you go. Now remember, God is perfect, and to break any one part of his law even once means that we've broken the whole thing. It says that in James 2, chapter 10. And so you and I have a very, very, very big problem. In order to, for us to be in a covenant relationship with God, we must be perfect. He is a perfect God, and he is a holy and righteous judge. And so we must be entirely righteous. Instead, of course, we stand condemned before God. And if you and I are outside of covenant relationship with God, then we will die. Because he's the source of life. And if we're cut off from him, we're cut off from life. And we will be punished for our rebellion because he is a holy judge. Even people who will not even admit that God exists, of course, they have a built-in desire and drive to convince themselves and others that they're acceptable. They do. <laughs> and so we all try to make ourselves right with God. But how can we truly be made right with God, entirely righteous with God? For each one of us, so much water has passed under the bridge. So much life has already happened. And you and I would probably answer yes to every single one of those questions that I ask, and many, many more if I ask them. Let's see this morning how God's Word answers the question, how can sinners be made righteous before a holy God? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And it's very important that you read along with me in the text that I'm going to preach. You know, each one of us is, we're like sieves, we're like, uh, we're like filters, you know, and, and we're so leaky that even just me reading it to you and you hearing it verbally isn't enough. It's more and it's better if you would open the scriptures and read it. Because I want you to be asking the question all throughout any one of my sermons that you listen to, is he explaining the text itself or is he giving me ideas from himself? I want you to fall more in love with the Bible because it's God's word to us and fall more in love with the God who's speaking to us through it. And so let's read from God's word in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious and good to reveal yourself to us. Would you make your word understandable? Would you make your word like a sharp-edged sword this morning that would cut us to the heart? In Christ's name, amen. Well, the main idea that I want you to gain and see in this passage this morning is abandon your worthless self-righteousness to gain the treasure of Christ's righteousness. Abandon your worthless self-righteousness to gain the treasure of Christ's righteousness. And those two clauses in that big idea that I've just stated to you really break into the two main points that I want to walk us through in these verses. The first is abandon your worthless self-righteousness. Give it up. Kick it to the curb. Get rid of it. And secondly, to gain the treasure of Christ and His righteousness. Abandon your worthless self-righteousness to gain the treasure of Christ and His righteousness. You'll remember that Paul is writing from prison He's writing to the Philippian church, a church that he planted through evangelism and then subsequent discipleship over the course of perhaps even some years. And the church there is made up of a diverse group of people as diverse as a woman, a businesswoman named Lydia, a young slave girl who had been possessed by a demon and used by her masters to tell fortunes and earn money in the marketplace, all the way to a Roman jailer, a man in charge of the local jail. A jail, in fact, that Paul had sat in at one point in time. And throughout this letter, Paul is urging the Philippians to continue growing in Christ, to work toward humble gospel-driven unity with each other, to imitate Christ's mindset and attitude, and to imitate humble, godly examples of people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then we come to our passage this morning in chapter 3. Look with me at verse 1. It signals a transition in Paul's message. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Paul had evidently taught the very things that he's about to teach them again in this section. And you know, we all learn by repetition. It's helpful for us to hear things taught again and again, especially the most important things. I wonder if you've noticed that I repeat things in my sermons. Maybe you think to yourself, there he goes again. He's talking about the gospel. Well, if that's true, then I am really glad and I've at least fulfilled part of my mission as a pastor is to repeat the gospel to you. 
You know, there really should be no sermon that you hear me preach where I don't explain how the text that we're studying for that morning is connected to the gospel somehow. Because the gospel is the core message of the entire Bible. Everything in the Bible is connected to it in some way or another. And so you should listen for the gospel every week when you hear me preach. And if you don't hear it, you should come and talk to me afterwards. And you should say, Brian, I'm, I'm not sure if I heard the gospel this week. Did you share it with us? Did you show us how that passage and how those verses connect to the good news? If I didn't, I'll be grateful. I'll be grateful for the correction. In fact, it might be a good discussion question for you every week when you go to lunch with others, maybe from Covenant Hope Church, and you sit with them around the table. Maybe you should ask the question, hey, do you all remember where Brian shared the gospel this morning and how it connected to what we learned in those particular verses? Was it connected? How was it connected to the message of that particular passage? That'd be a great starting point for your discussion over lunch. Parents, I want to encourage you. You should repeatedly and sometimes creatively, <laughs> if you can muster it, teach the most important truths of the scripture to your children. Repetition is important. Just like Paul is repeating something that he's taught the Philippians over and over and over again, you should repeat it to your children. Don't assume that they've learned it when they're young because maybe they can parrot it back to you. That's good. That's good, perhaps. Don't do that and then just move on to what you consider to be more, more complex, more complicated, more advanced teachings. You know, all the best things that your children need to know about God are connected to and rooted in truths that need to be taught repeatedly. Why do we need to repeat things? Well, Paul explains at the end of that verse 1, it's a safeguard to us. He says it's safe for you, Philippians. And what he means there is it's a spiritual safety gauge for them. So hearing the gospel again and again, it safeguards us from misunderstanding the scripture and its relationship to the core message of the Bible. So it's for our own spiritual safety that we repeat the most important truths over and over again when we gather as a church. I don't know if you've noticed that. Maybe you haven't gone to church. Maybe you haven't attended church for very many years in your life. But if you do, you'll find that churches that are focused on the scriptures and the gospel will repeat things over and over again. But if you're a genuine Christian, you'll be glad. You'll be so glad. And you'll be guarded and safe, kept safe by that as well. Now, back up for just a minute in verse 1. Back up from that phrase at the very end where he says, it's safe for you. Because the first thing that Paul tells them is to rejoice in the Lord. He says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Now, all throughout the book of the Philippians, the book that he's writing to them, he's been referring to joy. And he's been referring to the various people and situations that Christians should take joy in, that he takes joy in. So he's prayed with joy as he considered their partnership in the gospel. That was in chapter 1. He rejoiced that the gospel was preached despite the bad motives of some of the preachers who were preaching the gospel now that he was in prison. He rejoiced that due to the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Holy Spirit, he would be ultimately delivered. That's in chapter 1 as well. He wanted the Philippians to complete his joy by living humbly with each other. He was rejoicing in the Philippians' sacrificial faith. 
and telling them to rejoice in His sacrificial faith. That's in chapter 2. And He urged them to joyfully honor servants of Christ like Epaphroditus. So joy is this big theme throughout the book of Philippians. But now Paul turns to the foundation, the ultimate source of every Christian's joy. And that is the Lord. The Lord Himself is the source of our joy. Paul explains why in these verses, these 11 verses, but he does so by giving them a warning and a bit of his own history first. And the warning can be understood to teach us to abandon our worthless self-righteousness. Of course, that's the first point that I mentioned to you earlier. Abandon your, self, your worthless self-righteousness. And that covers verses 1 through 6. Now, self-righteousness, if you're wondering to yourself, you know, I've heard that word oftentimes. What does it mean? It means that when you're self-righteous, you begin to think of yourself as being righteous in and of yourself. In some way, you're morally perfect. We tend to think of people who are obviously arrogant as being self-righteous. We might call them self-righteous. Well, that person's so self-righteous. But you know what? Everyone does it. Every one of us begins to think that we are righteous in some way. We begin to justify ourselves. We begin to make excuses for who we are when we fall short. And self-righteousness can be seen in the people that Paul criticizes in verse 2. And Paul himself outlines his own self-righteous past then. So Paul wants the Philippians and us to know that self-generated righteousness or moral goodness is worthless for earning a right standing before a holy God. Let me say that again. Self-generated righteousness or moral goodness is worthless for earning a right standing with a holy God. Abandon it. Give it up, he's going to tell us. Throw it in the bin. And anyone who suggests to you that you should create your own righteousness is a great spiritual danger to you or any other Christian who might begin to believe what they say. In verse 2, Paul immediately launches into a very, very harsh warning about those who are teaching that people can generate their own righteousness. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, anyone who urgently says, look out to you, <laughs> three times over, wants you to know that you're in danger. And Paul wants the Philippians to know that they're in danger as well. Brothers and sisters, there are spiritual dangers all around us as well. There are ideas that are being taught that sound good at first, but they are dangerous to our faith. That's why you and I need to be careful thinkers about our faith and what we believe whether those ideas are coming from the songs that we listen to on the radio or coming from the TV shows that we watch or coming from the friends that we associate at work or in our free time or maybe even from family members who don't follow Christ or maybe family members who do follow Christ but who themselves are being lured into spiritual untruth. There are spiritual dangers all around us. Jesus urgently warned his disciples to be watchful, to be discerning, to pray for discernment, to pray for a deeper understanding of God's word. 
Are you on the lookout for teaching and ideas that will undermine your faith? Look out. Look out or else your faith could be undermined. Well, it's clear that Paul is urgent in his warning here in verse 2, but who is Paul talking about here? Who is it that the Philippians should be so careful to avoid? Who is it that Paul would go to the extent of calling them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh? Whoever it is that he's speaking about, we can get a clue about it when we go on to verse 3. And we see that Paul contrasts these dogs and evildoers and mutilators with himself and with the Philippian Christians. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the clue there to who he's speaking about in verse 2 is the word circumcision, first of all. So these dogs, evildoers, mutilators, they were who were a group of people that were called the Judaizers. They were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also believed that they needed to obey and carry out all of the Mosaic Law. When I say Mosaic Law, I mean the law given to Moses in the second book of the Bible when God rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians. They, these Judaizers believed that they needed to obey all of it in order to be faithful to God, in order to have faith in Jesus the Messiah, and in addition, carry out all those laws. So one of the key components of the laws that God gave the Israelites, stretching all the way back past and before the time of Moses in the Exodus in the book of Genesis, was that of circumcision. So circumcision was a sign that was applied to all Jewish men that signified that they and their household were members of the covenant with God. They were in relationship with God. They were in good standing with God. Abraham had been commanded to circumcise himself and all the male servants in his household. And that cutting mark in their flesh indicated that they were the people of God. It marked them off. And without it, any man would be cut off from the people of God. So it was a pretty serious thing, circumcision. Now the Judaizers were teaching that if a Gentile, a person who had not been circumcised from the time when he was an infant, if they wanted to become a Christian, they had to get circumcised and obey the law of Moses in addition to trusting in Christ. In other words, even if you were trusting in Christ, in Jesus, God would reject you and you would still be dead in your sins if you did not get circumcised. So they would tell someone who had repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, if they weren't circumcised, you're not okay with God. You've not been accepted by Him. Your sins are not forgiven. Come, be circumcised and get right with God. So why is Paul upset with them? Why is he so, so vehement? Paul believed that they were corrupting the gospel message itself. That's why. That's why he speaks so strongly against them. And when Paul says, we are the circumcision, he's saying, we are the true covenant people of God, not them. Oh, for certain, in the Philippian church, there were Christians who had not been circumcised. No, they simply heard the message of the gospel from Paul and they trusted in Christ. And Paul told them that in the gospel, simply by trusting in Christ, they were made right with God. So even though Paul himself had been circumcised, there were many of the Philippians who were not. 
Paul wants to emphasize that we don't worship primarily by obeying a written code. We worship by the Spirit of God. We don't boast in the marks in our body that say that we're Israelites. We boast or glory, as he says here, in Christ Jesus. And finally, he says in verse 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the Judaizers were confident that God would accept them because of Christ and circumcision. Now, in verse, Paul, in verse 4, Paul continues by telling the Philippians that he actually was, in his past life, someone just like the Judaizers. He says he had, he had reasons for confidence in the flesh. And he mentions confidence in the flesh three times in the span of two verses. Verses uh, 2 and 4. Excuse me, 3 and 4. When Paul says he was confident in the flesh... What he means by that is that there was a time when he himself trusted in his acceptance with God being based on his religious performance. The works that he did, his religious duties. Confidence in the flesh is self-righteousness. It's something that you generate. And he says that he had more reasons than anyone else to be confident in the flesh. In fact, he said, I have more reasons to be confident in the flesh. I had more reasons at least than these Judaizers. And so in verses 5 and 6, he gives us his Jewish CV. <laughs> That's what he lists out. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, that was according to the Old Testament law that was given. And that was the time when every male Hebrew baby was to be circumcised. Paul goes on to say that he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And you should know that Benjamin was one of the two most faithful tribes of the twelve when the northern tribes rebelled against the king who lived in Jerusalem. And he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So with these first statements, Paul is saying that his family lineage as a member of God's chosen people of God was flawless. He had the perfect ethnic identity. Second, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a strict religious sect that focused on a strict interpretation of God's law, and so they studied the law exhaustively. They even created more laws to prevent themselves from even getting close to violating any one of the laws of Scripture. Third, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul had been so passionate for the religious purity of the Israelite people that he persecuted the followers of Christ harshly. He persecuted them like they were religious heretics. He, of course, if you might remember in the book of Acts, he stood by approvingly as Stephen was stoned by the Jews. Stephen was a Christian leader in the church there in Jerusalem. Fourth, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was blameless. Now, Paul here wasn't claiming moral perfection. He knew that he wasn't sinless. Because the law, of course, had built into it solutions for sin. That's what a lot of the sacrifices and the offerings were for. He's saying that his life as a Jew was exemplary and that no one could criticize him if they observed his actions. He knew the law as well as it could be kept, at least externally. Now, you know, I'm assuming that none of us here are ethnically Jewish. But do you in any way think of your ethnicity, your nationality, 
as better than others? Be honest with yourself. Do you think of yourself as better? Maybe, maybe more educated. Maybe more resourceful. Maybe you have a more beautiful culture. And ultimately that translates into better before God. Do you? None of us here are Pharisees. But some of you know the Bible pretty well. Or maybe you've listened to more John Piper sermons or R.C. Sproul sermons online than anyone else here. Are you tempted to think that your superior knowledge of God's Word is something that makes you better than the person who doesn't know it very well? It's kind of like a Pharisee. You know, none of us here have been so zealous, so passionate about our faith that we, we've put people to death to maintain the purity of the church. But are you so passionate about good theology that you enjoy looking for theological error in other people's theology? Do you relish that? Might you be tempted to think that your zeal makes you more acceptable to God? Because you go around stamping out, identifying, correcting bad theology? You know, none of us here would say that we've kept the Mosaic Law better than anyone around us. But do you secretly pride yourself on the fact that you've not committed any of the big sins? You know, adultery, murder. Somehow you think that you've only committed the little sins and that God is really only paying attention to the people who commit the big ones. Or maybe we're more like Paul, the zealous Jewish Pharisee than we thought. Maybe we're more like him than we really realize. We all do this in different ways, brothers and sisters. We justify ourselves before God. We find creative ways to imagine that we have some kind of righteousness of our own that will make us acceptable to God. What is it for you? What is it for you? What reasons do you tend to think that God would welcome you into his presence over and against the person that's sitting next to you at work? Maybe you're at home. Maybe this morning here in our church gathering. Maybe it's not even religious in nature. Maybe it's your intellect. Maybe it's the suffering and hardship that you've gone through that you secretly think, you know what, I've already suffered enough. God wouldn't punish my sin. He sees me primarily as a victim. Maybe it's your kindness or that you're a more authentic person than those religious people around you. No, no, no. They're fake. You're not. God doesn't like fakes, so maybe you imagine that you're more acceptable to Him because of that. Whatever it is, if it's a self-generated righteousness, it will fail to make you acceptable before God. It's worse than worthless. It's deceiving you. And Paul wants you to abandon it in order to gain the treasure of Christ and His righteousness. And that's the second point this morning from verses 7 through 11. Let me read it to you, these glorious verses, one more time. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may suffer, excuse me, may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul has abandoned all of his confidence in the flesh and he's seized the treasure of Christ and his righteousness. In verse 7, he says that he counts it as a loss. In verse 8, he says that he counts his self-righteousness as rubbish. And you should know here that this word rubbish here means anything from rotten food to what you find in a toilet. That's right. The Apostle Paul says your self-righteousness is like human waste. And in verse 8, he says that he suffered the loss of his self-righteousness. You know what? It's painful and costly to let go of the worthless things that we justify ourselves with before God. It's, it's, it costs us. And it hurts. We know in our hearts that we're not right with God. We know that eternal life and eternal death is at stake. And so we hang on tight to those things that we justify ourselves with. Our sinful pride won't let us release those things so easily. But they're worthless. Abandon your self-righteousness to gain Christ and His righteousness. Let me point out four things about Christ and His righteousness that we read in these powerful verses 7 through 11. Number one, it comes through faith in the person and work of Christ. It comes through faith in the person and work of Christ. We don't work for Jesus to accept us. That's self-righteousness. We put faith in Jesus' work to be made right with God. Now, faith in Christ isn't just about knowing who Jesus is and what He did. Faith in Christ isn't just about even believing that in Christ and that the gospel is true. Faith must include trusting in, leaning on, depending on, staking your life on. Knowing, believing, trusting. That's what faith is made up of. When you trust in Christ, your life will begin to look different. So if you look at your life from a time maybe that you, you look back in your life and you say, oh, I, I believed in the gospel some years ago. But you look at your life and there's been, if you admit it, absolutely no change whatsoever. Then I would venture to guess that quite possibly you've not trusted in Christ. You've not leaned on His work on the cross. You're not depending on Him. Number two, the second thing we can learn about this righteousness from Christ is that you can't have it both ways. You can't combine self-righteousness and Jesus. Paul knew that he couldn't just add Jesus to his own righteousness, or else he would have. And that would make anything that we do of equal and eventually greater value than Jesus. No, Paul says he counted all of his self-righteousness as loss in order that I might gain Christ. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were trying to combine a little Jesus with a lot of their own righteousness. 
you and I must count the one, our self-righteousness, as complete loss, equal to what goes into the toilet. Your justification before God is not a team effort. It comes solely from Jesus. Now your sanctification, growing in that holiness, is a team effort. But justification before God, being declared righteous, is solely from God. It's all of Jesus' work and none of yours in order to be welcomed by God. Back in the 1600s, there was a gospel preacher named Richard Sibbs. And he uh, was noted for preaching about the love of Christ. Particularly the love of Christ between the members of the Trinity and how that spilled out into the lives of believers. And how... That love was what drew and kept true believers in union with Christ Jesus. And one Mr. Mills, we don't know much about this Mr. Mills. He's not a preacher himself. But in his diaries, he writes about his life and what it was like before he heard the sermons of Richard Sibbs. Here's what he says. I was for three years together wounded for my sins and under a great sense of my corruptions, which were many. And I followed sermons, pursuing the various ways of trying to become godly, and was constantly doing duties and religious tasks, looking for heaven that way. And then I was so exacting in my estimation of what it meant to be holy and outward, exterior compliance with the law, that I began to judge other people as being not Christians. People who wore their hair long, not short, above their ears, or who wore great fancy clothing to church. But yet I was distracted in my mind, wounded in my conscience, and I wept often and bitterly, and I prayed earnestly, and yet I had no comfort until I heard that sweet saint, Dr. Sibbs, by whose ministry I was brought to peace and joy in my spirit, his sweet, soul-melting gospel sermons won my heart and refreshed me much. For by him I saw and had much of God and was confident in Christ and could overlook the world. My heart held firm and resolved and my desires were pointed all heavenward. You can't combine your own self-righteousness with Jesus for acceptance before God. The third thing to learn about this righteousness that comes from Christ is that knowing Christ means having a personal relationship with Him. You know, uh, around Dubai, there's not too many of these, but there are some drive-up windows at our restaurants. Maybe some of the McDonald's have them. There's a Starbucks on Beach Road that has a drive-through window. There's a Costa Coffee as well. Believe me, I've tried out both of them. You can drive up, pay at the window, and take your coffee or your meal away with you. And oftentimes, as Christians, we think about the righteousness and the forgiveness that we need to get from God like we're going to get it at a drive-up window. Like we're going to go to God, ask for righteousness like it's some kind of package that gets put in a bag and gets handed to us, and then we drive away from God, from Christ, and do what we want. But that's not how it works. The righteousness of Jesus is given to you when you're bound to Him. The righteousness can't be separated from Him. 
And so you need to be connected to Him and in relationship with Him for that righteousness to remain with you. So it's, it's like marriage. When two people get married, they typically merge their bank accounts. And so if I were to have had debt when I got married to Joanne and she had millions, then I would have millions when we got married and my debts would be paid off. Hers would be mine, mine would be hers. Being in relationship or union with Christ through faith involves sharing his life. Look at verse 10 and 11. If you know Christ, you will begin to experience the power of his resurrection. Romans 8 says that if the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you also, that Holy Spirit will give life to your mortal body. In those verses as well, it says if you know Christ, you will share in his sufferings. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. If you know Christ, you will become like him in his death. Think back to Philippians chapter 2 and what it says about Jesus. He was selfless, humble, obedient, worthy of honor. If you know Christ, you will eventually be resurrected to new eternal life with Christ. Verse 11 that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, the zealous Jewish Pharisee, was in a lifelong pursuit of self-righteousness. And it's a pursuit that we all are in as well, whether we admit it or not. All humanity is pursuing some kind of self-righteousness. Paul abandoned that pursuit and he began to pursue Christ, to gain Him to know Him, to be found in Him on that day of judgment. That is every true Christian's pursuit. Are you pursuing Christ Jesus and the righteousness that can be found in Him? Or are you ordering your life? Are you ordering your life so that you're getting to know Him more and more? You know, that's what life in a church is about. Pursuing Christ together. The fourth thing that I want to tell you that these verses 7 through 11 teach us about gaining the treasure of Christ and His righteousness is that Christ and His righteousness are of unparalleled worth. Don't miss the main point that Paul is making. Jesus and His righteousness, the righteousness that He holds out as a gift to you and I, is, is supreme. It is surpassing. It is inestimable. It is of exceeding great worth. That gift is not just His righteousness. It's actually God Himself. Jesus is offering Himself to us in the Gospel. I wonder, have you received it by faith? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you counted all your self-righteousness as loss in order that you may gain Christ the treasure that He is and the righteousness that He gives us freely? So what should be on your CV as you stand before God? <laughs> what should be written there? Nothing. You don't need a CV. When you stand before God, you and I 
who have trusted in him will say, I know you, Jesus, and you know me. Let's pray.